Well, good morning to you. So, if you are new here, uh, my name is Tony and I'm pastor here at LAFC and we are doing a series called Post Tenebris Lux. We don't normally speak Latin here, uh, but that is Latin for after darkness light. And that was the motto of the Reformation uh, that impacted the church uh, greatly 500 years ago. As of October 31st, 1517, uh, we celebrate that 500th year. And the After Darkness Light was referring to the fact that prior to that point, the church taught exclusively in Latin and the written scriptures were in Latin as well. That would be fine if it was a Latin-speaking culture except for it was not the common language of any country. In fact, uh, it, it was not the spoken language. And so priests and, and scholars were the only ones that would know that language. And so as people would attend churches, they would only hear a language that meant nothing to them. And so their understanding of who God is and who they are in light of God was limited. And so it was a true season, in fact, a lengthy season of several hundred years of where the church became ignorant of the Word of God and not knowing what was said. And so with the posting of the 95 Theses, we see a new era of where the church began to pursue what it truly is said in Scripture as to what defines our faith and what our faith is about. And uh, so we are in the process of looking at the 95 points or the theses that, that Luther posted on the Wittenberg Church all those years ago and what their implications were and why they were spoken. And so we give a lot of history as part of that. And so uh, as part, this week what I want to kind of share is the history of how even the church that you're sitting in today as to how it even connects to what happened on that door 500 years ago. And that was that when Luther posted that and, and people began to be curious about what's being taught because now they can start hearing scripture read in their own tongue and, 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 uh, and interpreted by, by Luther himself and then they're seeing his writings. And, and so it created a movement that began, you know, certainly within the German area, but also Switzerland became a big part of the Reformation Center as people began to hear from people like John Calvin or Wycliffe and others that were a part of that reformational season. Well, with Luther's movement being in Germany, which is on the northern end of Europe, the, there was great influence upon the Scandinavian countries at the time. And, and so you, if you don't know what the Scandinavian countries are, that would be Finland, Sweden, Norway, and, uh, and sometimes Denmark gets included into that. But there was a great movement of influence from off of what Luther had done in Germany that impacted those states. And as time went on, the movement of God was so significant in those countries that it began to impact the governments of those countries, in particular Sweden, Norway, and Denmark. And so as, as that was impacting the government, then the government got this great idea. Why don't the church and the government become one entity? Now, if you know anything about the history we talked about just a few weeks ago, part of the problem that began to happen uh, that, that led to Luther doing what he did in regards to being a Catholic priest in the Catholic Church was that in A.D. 324, when Constantine, Roman Caesar, became a follower of Christ, he made the official uh, religion of the Roman Empire to be Christian and then centralized the Christian faith to the government. And as a result, over time, the gospel certainly spread because of the significance of the Roman Empire, but over time, because the government isn't 
necessarily led by Christian faith-based people, it began to corrupt. And so then that's why in 1517, you know, a thousand years later, the church had long passed in its, in its vibrancy and its, and its vitality of faith because the government was primarily hand-in-hand -hand with the leadership of the church. And now history repeats itself. The Scandinavian states are now doing the same thing where the government had been impacted greatly by the gospel that it made sense to make it one, but over time it began to corrupt like what had happened a you know, several thousand years earlier because at this point we're talking 19th century and early 20th century. And so what happened then is in the late 1800s and early 1900s is the church, those that were within it, were seeing that the church was growing cold because of its connection to being led by the government. And so they started what was called the Evangelical Free Church of Sweden, the, and the Evangelical Free Church of Norway, which also then included Denmark. Now, that requires a little bit of definition. Now, I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. Friend, uh, pastor friend down in the D.C. area shared a story of how he was um, in his church one day preaching and noticed a new person that was in the church and seemed rather disgruntled by their experience with the church. And so this pastor engaged this person after the service and said, can I help you? You seem to be a little disappointed in something today. And this person said, I, I really feel like you've falsely advertised this church. And he goes, well, what do you mean? He says, I came to this church expecting there to be no evangelicals, but it is filled with them here. <laughs> you see, the person thought that the term evangelical free church meant that it was free of evangelicals. And if you're in the D.C. area, which is very politicized, the term evangelicals become a political hot button, and so it doesn't always represent very well the evangelical faith. But nonetheless, it, was, it creates a, uh, what should I say, a divisive argument sometimes just by the label evangelical. And so, uh, you know, people, I guess, are looking for churches free of evangelicals. And so if that's you and you've come here this morning expecting to be free of evangelicals, I'm sorry to tell you, you just walked into a room full of them. Uh, so... Uh, but anyway, so this evangelical free church name actually meant that they said we need to reclaim our evangelical roots, that we are committed to sharing the gospel of Christ and living out the gospel in our lives. That's where the idea of evangelicalism comes from. And the term free meant free from government control and free from central leadership. Because that what would happen is they'd observe when you have a strong central power of leadership within the church, it often goes astray at the cost of the local church being able to be able to stand against the going astray of the leader. And so they wanted local autonomy. And so there was freedom for the local church to pursue the scriptures uh, together and be able to uh, lead out as God would lead that local church. And it was also then free from government control as well to have that local autonomy and to be committed to the, the movement and the, and the expression of the gospel, therefore evangelicalism. And so that 
began a movement in the Scandinavian states. And then in the early 1900s, if you know about the history of immigration in our country, the Scandinavians came in mass to this country in the early 1900s, especially in the 20s and 30s. And so there were a lot of of Scandinavians that came into this country in two primary places, uh, New York City being the one, which makes sense. It's where a lot of Europeans came. But a lot of the Scandinavians, that's about a third of them, two-thirds of them, came down through the Hudson uh, aspect in the upper areas of Canada, down through the Great Lakes, and went to Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Illinois. Hence, if you travel to those states, you'll see a lot more Scandinavian last names up there and why you would hear the term Minnesota Vikings would be an embraced term for the team that's uh, in that, that city. So uh, it, it's this massive movement that, again, were Scandinavians, and they brought with them the, the term evangelical free. But what they came with was they were the Evangelical Free Church of Sweden and Evangelical Free Church of Norway meeting in the United States of America. In 1939, those two groups merged together to become the Evangelical Free Church of America. And as of late, uh, as of the late 1960s, many of those churches were still speaking exclusively Norwegian and Swedish. And so whether or not, which is not likely, uh, you're of Scandinavian roots, you're a part of a Scandinavian movement of God that was rooted back into Germany, of which began in 1517, October 31st, when Luther posted 95 theses. So, little history lesson there to know what you're attending and are a part of here. So if you are disappointed in that history, I'll give you a moment. You can walk out the doors. Our ushers will high-five you on the way out and, uh, and say God bless you. So, but anyway, at this time, I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles then, and hopefully you have a translation that you can actually read in English, I'm assuming if that's your first language. Uh, I'm going to have you turn to uh, Galatians chapter 2, and then also the passage in Romans 3. And so if you can find those two locations, so it's towards the back of your Bible in the New Testament, Romans chapter 3 and Galatians chapter 2. So a little review about this series, we began with teaching what the first three uh, elements of the 95 Thesis were about this idea of repentance. And repentance being a term that we, you know, you might have heard if you've been around Christian circles at all, but to understand the term repentance and its, and its uh, core uh, teaching within the doctrine of the Christian faith, you have to understand that repentance means literally, in its language, a change of mind. But it's like a full change of mind. It's, a, it's, a, it's an entire transformation of what, you know, being one way and, and exclusively going towards another. And that's where I used uh, these signs that you see up here now. We have sin on this side, which represents this entire side of the room. And then you have God on this side, and these are the redeemed ones over here. And uh, no, just kidding, but uh, I want to use these signs here for a moment because sin is where all of us start. We are inherently sinful. When each of us were conceived and then born, we were born with the seed of sin within us. 
There has only been one person since the creation of Adam and Eve and, and then ultimately their fall. There's only been one person born without sin since that time, and that was Jesus Christ. And he was born of a virgin birth and therefore did not have the seed of sin rooted within him. That's the significance of that, that celebration that we have next month in December. But we all start here. There are many in, 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 in throughout the world that, that believe differently from this idea that we're inherently evil to start. Some believe that we're inherently good to begin with. And that's where the communistic view of mankind actually comes from. Is in communism, they believe that man is inherently good. If you give them all an equal start, then things will work out to the better. So, how did that work with communism in the countries that it had it from the beginning for 50 plus years? Corruption still happened, sin still happened, things still were bad. It was not this utopia as thought because it, the, where they were starting from was a faulty premise. They believed that man was inherently good, and that's faulty. We are actually inherently evil. We are inclined to selfishness. We are inclined towards sin, and that's where we begin. And so with repentance, what, what repentance means with that change of mind or that change of, that transformational change where you think differently, therefore become different, is this idea of repentance. And so therefore what it says is repentance acknowledges that you're here. That's the core understanding of repentance is you acknowledge you are here and that you want to be there. All right, so let's describe God for a moment. God is, if, if we're inherently evil, God is inherently good. He is pure, he is righteous, he is just, and he is all love. There is nothing tainted in God. He is perfectly holy, set apart, different from us. Because God is holy, nothing can be in his presence that is tainted without being destroyed. That is the purity of God. But yet God is also fully love. And when he created mankind, he created them in his image with a desire to love on them and to have a relationship with them. But the problem is now they're tainted. They have evil and they can't be in his presence without being destroyed. So what does God do? He has this love that's still for his creation. So he creates a means by which the ones that are over here can become fully righteous, fully holy, and fully just. But that's something they cannot do. It's only something he could accomplish. So he accomplished that through sending his son Jesus Christ to die on a cross as a sinless man and then to become the once and for all sacrifice, to become the bridge between God and man. But that's a work of God and God alone. And repentance says, I acknowledge I'm here, but I want to be there. So I look and I look to God and I call out for help. Repentance realizes I can't do it. Repentance realizes I'm here. Repentance realizes God is there. And so when you have that understanding in the mind, then you turn and you plead to God for help. Then we looked at in the next week that in the writings of, of Luther, and it goes beyond the 95 Theses, that he talks about this idea of justification by faith alone. And, and that is, again, it's rooted in Scripture, but it, but it wasn't taught very clearly in the church of that time because there were so many acts that were taught at that time as to ways you can become 
justified or become pure before God's eyes. So there were things that you could do on your own to move yourself across this to become more in favor with God and to become more righteous. But he's saying, no, we cannot become, we cannot cross over from here to here except by faith in the work of Christ alone. And then last week, we looked at how then because of that transition from here to here, that we now get to be in that presence of God fully as as holy and sanctified and just in the full presence of God without fear of destruction. And we'll get more into each of these areas today as we get further in. Where I'd like to start today, though, is in this understanding of grace. Grace is the actual work of God that bridges these two. But in order to get there and understand the significance of what was understood 500 years ago and why that was an elusive concept, the idea of true grace, we have to go on a journey. So I want to read Theses number 36 and number 37 to get us in motion to understanding the, under, the, the ignorance of grace 500 years ago. So beginning with 36, it says this, Any truly repentant Christian has a right to full remission of penalty and guilt, even without indulgence letters. Let me read that again. Any truly repentant Christian, in other words, anyone who is here that truly acknowledges they are a sinner, that is in need of God's work in their life, and they can't get there on their own, they themselves, as a repentant Christian, truly repentant, has the right of full remission. In other words, full coverage, for expanding this gap between the two. They have the right to having full remission of penalty and guilt. Therefore, no guilt whatsoever, no judgment, even without indulgence letters. Now, that even word is important because he's speaking to an audience that, that, that has been taught for centuries now that the way to get from here to here is through indulgence letters to pay for God to be satisfied with you. Now, again, just in case you weren't here, indulgence letters were literally letters that were sealed by the church and signed by the church to say that you have paid money for that letter to pay as a proportion for your sin and therefore make you right with God. And so you could buy multiple letters to move you further across. It depends how bad of a sinner you were. So if you weren't a a terrible sinner in your mind, you would say, oh, I only need to buy a couple of them. And so you spend less. Or let's say it's like, I'm rich and I want to make sure that I don't have, leave anything. So you buy a bunch of them and you have all these letters. And they're supposed to make you right before God. But my question then becomes, well, when you die and you go before God, you can't take the letters with you. So what do you say to God in that moment? Okay, God, well, I, I, I recognize that I didn't bring these letters with you, but they do exist. And so if you go into my house, in the filing cabinet that's in the kitchen, in the second drawer, third file, you'll find these letters I purchased. And that will make me right with you, and I have paid for myself to be able to be with you for eternity. You receive that with like, that is the strangest concept ever. But keep in mind, If you did not have the word of God in your hands, if you had never read scripture, if you had never been taught in your own common language, if you had been told by those who knew the scriptures exclusively through Latin and that you had to trust what they were saying, 
you would have just simply accepted it as truth. So therefore, you would purchase those letters, and, and as a result, the church was able to receive money through these matters of indulgence letters. And here's the other thing. They started creating uniqueness to the types of indulgence letters that you could purchase. So let's say that it's like, okay, in Lancaster County, if we wanted to come up with a way to raise money for a building project, that we would do this. Okay, we're going to create a way that if you spend about, mm, let's say, $5,000, we'll get you the coverage of sin for gossip. Then, you know, you'll be absolved of any gossip you've ever done. And in Lancaster County, that would be really important. <laughs> so that's, let's just put it at 5000 Oh, here's another one. Well, let's do an indulgence letter for gluttony. We eat a lot of starches in this county. We have a lot of breads. So, you know what? We need coverage for the overindulgence of food in our culture. So, we're going to put a bigger price tag on that. That's going to be $15,000. And so, if you've been overeating or you feel like you're just a little overweight, the way you can make yourself right before God and not have to worry about that condemning you is to pay about $15,000. We would pay for our building project like tomorrow. I mean, let's just face it. You start identifying sins and then and providing indulgence letters specifically tied to that. If you did not know that's not how God operates, you would pay up. That's just the reality. You'd pay up. Because nobody wants to go before God feeling like they are totally exposed and naked and have nothing to offer and have done nothing to earn righteousness or rightness with God. But again, an ignorant people know nothing different. And so, they, so when he says in, verse, in that number 36 saying, a repentant Christian has the right to full remission, full remission of any penalty or any guilt, even without an indulgence letter, that was revolutionary to their mind. Number 37, he says this, any true Christian, whether living or dead, um, <clears throat> whether living or dead, can participate in all the blessings of Christ and the church. And this is granted to him by God, even without indulgence letters. Really? I, you mean, I can have the full blessings of Christ and the church, even without an indulgence letter. Revolutionary, again. In his mind. And so you're, you're, you're receiving this and you're hearing this. And we, some of us that have grown up in the church, can even associate Scripture with what he's saying. But for the person who was not aware of Scripture, they're reading this on the door that day. And they had no idea where this came from. But it made them inquire. Is it possible to be right with God without any payment on my part? Could I ever be seen as holy, righteous, and pure without any work on my part? And the scripture would validate this once they would have it in their own language. And so what are the ramifications of these two theses? Well, uh, Luther ends up sharing that repentance, again, the first three things. And he, he takes it from Romans 1.17 and other passages. But repentance was the core message of the gospel. To acknowledge that you're a sinner and to realize your condition and your need for God, and you turn towards God pleading for his help, that that's at the core of it. And, we, and, and, and when you see that in this, he says, any true Christian who repents, or any truly repentant Christian, how do you know a Christian is truly repentant? There's fruit. 
There's fruit in that. You'll see that there's fruit in the evidence that they've surrendered to God and they're becoming more like him. Now, there's something I need to say here, and several people have offered this information to me, uh, thinking that we're going to offer everything we know about Luther in one given Sunday, and so they inform me of what I haven't said as of yet. So let me tell you, so we can eliminate this thing. Luther did not like the book of James. All right? The book of James was a book that Luther would have loved to have removed from the canon of Scripture. Why? Because in his culture, in his day, everybody believed in their mind that salvation was by works. It was by merits. It was by things you did. And James says in chapter 2, says that faith without deeds is dead. And so Luther didn't like the fact that this kind of worked against what was inherent in society as being a risk to being a works-based faith. But that's not what James was talking about. He was not speaking as to faith is something that you do, but rather something that faith is evidenced by. In other words, James chapter 2, of which Luther could not stand, all right, so Luther wasn't absolute in his understanding of everything. But what Luther looked at with James chapter 2 was that it was prescriptive rather than descriptive. In James 2, it says, show me a faith without works or deeds, and i show you a faith that is dead. He goes on to say, then show me a faith with, with works, and I'll show you a faith that is alive. When you read the context of James, he wasn't telling you what you should do. He was telling you that a person with real faith is going to show there's fruit of their life. There's evidence by it. So it's descriptive, not prescriptive. And, and so, but I understand the tension for Luther because when you have centuries of teaching that it's a workspace faith, that's why he would react to James chapter 2. So now, now you know, I do know about Luther's struggle with James. But let me tell you this. James, it, uh, Luther ended up writing a commentary on James. He ended up including it in the scripture and agreeing that it is indeed scripture. He just probably had to bite his lip the entire time he was doing that commentary. So Luther got over it, was able to acknowledge it as part of scripture, and so should we. But let me tell you this to affirm James for a moment. It was Jesus who said in the Sermon on the Mount, how will you know when somebody is truly my follower? Because he had just said, watch out, there are lambs among wolves. In other words, I mean wolves among lambs, sorry. <laughs> wolves among lambs. And, and, the, and the listener says, well, why, well, how would I know when it's a wolf and not a lamb? And he says, you'll know a tree by its fruit. A tree that A good tree will produce good fruit, and a bad tree will produce bad fruit. So you'll just know it's, it's descriptive as to who truly are repentant ones. And so the, so the concern then of Luther and the ramifications of what he's just said about the fact that we can have the full blessings of Christ in the church, even without an indulgence letter, that we can truly then be re, uh, given freedom from the guilt and penalty of our sins because of the work of Christ, and that's evidenced by a repentant Christian. The evidence is the fruit as to who is truly repented. You'll see by their lives. You'll know and acknowledge. It's like, yeah, they've seen who they're sin that they were sinners, and they turn their back on it. If your back is on it, you're no longer described by this. You're becoming more like what you're aiming towards. So that's the fruit of it all. And, and so the ramification is the repentance, again, is the evidence of a true Christian's faith. Secondly, he says, uh, the, the ramifications of 36 and 37 is that a true Christian's rights, 
to absolute absolvement of penalty and guilt is completed by faith in Christ's work alone and not by the payment of a Christian. Not by the payment of a pope, a priest, or even a follower of Christ. None of that will save you. None of that is where we become absolved of our sins. Those rights come through Christ's work alone, not by our works. And so Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, I feel like we need to read this, not just refer to it. So Galatians 2, 16, I had you turn there earlier. It says this, Know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Excuse me. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. In other words, justification, being made just, being made holy, being worthy of standing here is not by the works of anyone over here, but by the works that God has provided in Jesus Christ alone. So then another ramification is when he says this about the full blessings of Christ in the church can be had for those who are true Christians without paying for an indulgence, basically says this, a true Christian then is granted full rights and blessings of God without payment or attainment to this idea of a supposed heavenly caste system. Now, a caste system may be unfamiliar to you, but let me describe it. In the old English order, in the old European order, the caste system was a ranking in society. You had titles that would afford you certain places in society. And so you could be a lord or a duke and, and be of a higher level. Well, in the Middle East, the same thing would happen. They would be established by their name and they'd be a part of their money would establish where they're at. And so this idea of a caste system in society was very prevalent when Luther wrote this. And people were believing that what happens here on this earth also happens in heaven. So in heaven, there's a caste system. And based on how well you do your works will determine your standing in heaven. And therefore, you'll be at this level. And, and your, your, uh, <clears throat> your, your, um, what's the, uh, your castle, your, your dwelling place will be greater than another based on the works you've done here on this earth. And you'll be able to brag that when you get to heaven that your, yours will be a shack and mine will be a mansion based on your works here. And basically what Luther's just said, it means nothing. Nothing you've done here on this earth will establish your standing in heaven. You are given the rights of a, of a child of God fully by the work of Christ alone. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 says this, that, that, that we were given this great privilege that we should be called children of God. Children of God being that we are the heirs of the kingdom of heaven. We have the rights of a firstborn. So in a family line in Middle Eastern culture and even European culture, firstborn stands really tall. They have greater rights than everybody else. And what this is saying in 1 John is that, listen, for all those who Christ has redeemed, we are the firstborn of God. We're the children of God. We're the heirs of the kingdom of heaven. Not by anything we've done, but rather by the standard of what Christ has done on our behalf. And, and, and it was difficult in the time of Luther because they were building great cathedrals with all this money received from letters of indulgence. And then people would go beyond the letters of indulgences and actually give to the building project so that they can get new titles given to them by the church. 
And then their titles would give them new standing in society. So Luther is speaking into this saying, listen, the work of Christ entitles us all to the full rights of heirs of the kingdom of heaven. It is not a caste system in heaven. It is truly a, a system of grace on behalf of all. Jesus supports the same thing when he says, who will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He said the least of these. Children. He made that comment multiple times, and it was always to provoke the idea of what you thought would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The disciples thought, hey, we're part of the 12 chosen by the Messiah himself, so we must become the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And then they started thinking, not only are we the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, but who among us, among the 12, 12 to 1, who's going to be 1 and who's going to be 12? They had that argument all the time. And Jesus confronted the caste system multiple times in their minds by saying, listen, you want to take the greatest chair, then you must become the lowest among you. Jesus destroyed the concept of a caste system in his very own teaching. And, but when you take uh, the entire generation of a church, generations of a church, and you do not teach them about what Jesus said, then they would accept the idea there must be a heavenly caste system. Because they would know no other thing other than what the church would teach. So this went to underscore that salvation or the rightness before God becoming justified here is by a work of God alone, which then becomes grace on our behalf. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, we've quoted it multiple times over the last few weeks, but it's, it's so formational to our understanding of the work of God in our lives. But it says this, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So the work of bridging from here to here is grace. And we repent and acknowledge our need for that work of grace. We see who we are. We turn our back on it. We look to God. God does the rest. But then we have to have faith to believe this is sufficient. This is enough. That's where faith, it causes us to believe, to say, I believe that's enough. That's all that's needed. So then some people would say, you know what? Well, faith becomes the works of man. Well, in this passage, it says this, that even faith, even faith is a gift. I mean, think about it. You and I are here in this room. Somebody that's not here today that would never darken the doors of the church in their mind would find it extremely odd that you believe that the work of somebody who died on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago justifies you before a God that they may not even realize exists. That story is going to seem so strange to them. But yet you're so convinced that you're willing to come and attend a church about it. You're willing to give towards a church that's, that's speaking about it. You're willing to let your life be changed by it. Clearly, you believe in that faith. But that faith itself was a gift given to us by God to have that level of belief. So we can't even brag about our own faith. We can't brag about the fact we actually believe. We have to trust that this is all a work of the grace of God and say, thank you for giving me faith. Thank you for helping me see that I am a sinner. Thank you for changing my mind when I realize I need you. Thank you that then, once I realized I needed that change, that I could not do it for myself and you did it for me. Thank you. And that's where grace comes in. So then Luther goes on to say in, in 66 to 68 of his 95, he says this, The treasures then of indulgences are nets with which one fishes for the wealth of men. He's picking a fight. 
I mean, if the, if the Pope's aren't already infuriated, he is now, all right? So the treasures of indulgences are nets with which men fishes for, which one now fishes for the wealth of men, the indulgences which the demagogues acclaim as the greatest graces are actually understood to be, so, to be such only insofar as they promote gain. Heavy language, but pretty important. So they are nevertheless, in truth, the most insignificant graces when compared to the grace of God and the piety of the cross. So Luther takes to issue with the idea that they were began, again, it wasn't initial, but later as time went on, these indulgence letters began to be labeled as works of grace, identifying them as graces. So you would come having sinned greatly, and they would say, well, you're in need of a grace, so pay this much, and you will find rightness between you and God. That became a misnomer, and it began to teach grace as something very different. It was then being understood that if I buy an indulgence letter, I experience grace, that literally it's teaching that grace is a works-based faith. That's not what grace means at all. But we'll get there here in a moment. And then, uh, as, as a result of this, it became a work of greed. And, and Luther says this very clearly in his writings, that the indulgence letters literally were rooted in this idea of greed. To bless the works of mankind here on this, and labeling it God. Indulgences then were being promoted as a means of grace, which is just gross misunderstanding. And that grace is somewhat found in indulgences was insignificant as compared to the what really is Grace. So what does grace mean? It basically means this in its purest form in the language that it comes from. Unmerited favor. That's it. That's the simple definition of grace. Unmerited favor. So it's nothing that in work of grace is something that has been earned or applied for or worked for. It was unmerited, but you receive favor. And that's, so there's an action of God towards mankind that is of favor. But it was not because of anything that was done to earn it on this side of things. It was unmerited. What's, and so therefore, it had nothing of, of benefit or works that we could boast whatsoever as a work of grace in our life. We can't boast over it. It is something done completely by God. It also could be served, as, as one commentarian said, undeserved acceptance and love. So that's more focused, that definition is more focused on the fact that grace is, the, is, is an act of love on God's part that, that we did not earn and therefore we get acceptance from God that he's welcoming us into his family and into his relationships and therefore it's undeserved, unmerited acceptance and love. Now I want us to turn to Romans chapter 3. So we have the proper definition of grace. It's not something you pay for, earn, or work for. It is merely something that is offered freely by God. His acceptance and love is freely given. Therefore, it becomes grace, not by anything we've done. We need to then look at, is there a need then for this grace? Romans chapter 3, verses 20 to 24 says this. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. 
But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. So, Basically, through the law, it makes a big statement here. The law was given by God in the Old Testament as basically setting an understanding and boundaries as to what holiness looks like. By the things that we're told not to do, you can then discover what things we are to do and that which is pure and that which is holy. And, but the law only provides for us unawareness. And if anything, it provides, according to Scripture, it actually condemns us. Because what it does, the law says, guess what? This is you. You're a sinner. You are somebody who is not meeting the standards of God. That's what the law does. It exposes our guilt. And then we get that very clearly in verse 20. So therefore, it exposes of our guilt, but there's nothing about the law that can save us because full adherence to the law is the only way you can go from here to here. Who has ever fully fulfilled the law. None of us. No one. And, and, and we get that from this passage as well. In fact, it says, we are made right in God's eyes. Verse 22, we are made right in God's eyes by faith in his work, trusting in his work, believing in his work, and laying down this idea and belief that my efforts merit something from God. So it is impossible for us to be made right by our own works. We all fall short. And that's what it says in verse 23. Our efforts will always fall short. And he even goes on to clarify that there's nothing on this earth by merit or by birthright that can make us right with God. I mean, after all, at this time when this is being written by Paul, it was believed that, you know, okay, the Messiah came from the Jewish nation. The promises to all mankind came through Abraham. So all the world will be blessed by Abraham's descendants. And so it was believed that there was a caste system in heaven, that there is the, the Jew, and then there is everyone else. In fact, in the time of when Paul and Christ were living, walking among the streets of Israel, the Gentiles were referred to not as Gentiles, but as sinners. That was the title. If you look in Scripture, Jesus was being accused of, of hanging out with the wrong people. And they said, you're hanging out with tax collectors, you're hanging out with lepers, and you're hanging out with sinners. What they were saying is you're hanging out with Gentiles, and you shouldn't do that because that's a lower standard. So in Scripture, when Paul, who is an elite Jewish believer, he was saying that, listen, there is, it is justification by faith. We become righteous by faith for all who believe, and there's no difference between Jew or Gentile. None. So there isn't a blood thing that can even elevate you, as significant as the Jewish history is in our faith. And it says that, that all have sinned, including Jew, including Gentile, all have sinned. All start here. All then are going to need to get help from here to there. And so our need for grace is for everyone. And justification, then verse 24, it says this again. Justification, we are justified freely. Not by payment, not by work. We are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came in Christ Jesus. 
Now I want us to go just one chapter to the right in Romans chapter 4. And I want to read verses 13 to 16. And look what it says. It said, It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that actually comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing, and the promise is worthless. Because the law brings wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise then comes by faith, so that it may be by grace that we may be guaranteed to all, to all Abraham's offspring. Not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have faith in of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, both Jew and Gentile. So God's promises that he says, I am going to see you as fully righteous, fully holy, fully justified, here with him as he is. All the standards that require of us to be pure and to be in his presence without being destroyed, we become that in the eyes of God, not because of our works, but because of the work of God himself. Believing in this adherence to the law then will save us and, and will then, uh, believing that adherence to the law will save us will only condemn us because we'll never succeed. So if you hold to this idea that I can go from here to here by my own efforts, you're actually already condemned because your faith is in something that you can accomplish and you're being told, God says, it'll never be enough. It'll never be enough. The promise then comes through one means. It's the promise that comes by this faith that says the work of God's grace is enough. So, we acknowledge we're a sinner. We see that we fall short and nothing I can do can bring me from here to there. I turn to God. I plead to God for help. And, and, and he says, I have provided a way. And grace becomes the only bridge. We need to understand that there is nothing you or I can do to cause this chasm to be brought together and to find justification before God. It is a work of grace. Our faith to believe that this work is enough is an act of grace. God gives us that ability to have that kind of faith. To believe that, that there is one sacrifice that was complete and was able to cover all the sins of all those that are here in this room. If we just collect the sins accomplished by those here in this room in our lifetime, imagine how big that would, sin would be. And to think that, that God's one act through Jesus Christ was enough and he did it for us to bridge the entire gap from here to there. That is a, an amazing grace that I can't even fathom or understand. And then you start thinking, well, all the sins committed throughout time just from those who've lived in Lancaster County. Imagine how much sin that is. And that yet God's one sacrifice was enough to cover all the sins of those of us that live in Lancaster County. And then you start considering our country and to think of all the sin that is just just abounding in this country and yet the work of Christ on the cross one time was enough to cover all of that and to bridge the person from here to there and then you think the sins of the world and it just begins to blow your mind this one word this one word is the most significant word in our faith without grace you and I are damned Without grace, you and I are stuck. Without, you, without grace, you and I 
would have no hope. And therefore, indulgence letters would be some kind of scheme to just make us feel better for the day, but it accomplishes nothing. Grace is the significance of our bridging of the gap between us and God that God did alone through one act, one time, through Christ. I want us to, to cement this with the picture that, that is given to us in scriptures as to how that grace came about. In Hebrews 9, which was read uh, last week by, by Corey, but I want us to go there. In Hebrews 9, so it's towards the end of your Bibles. So in Hebrews 9, Starting in verse 11, it says this, but when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, because again, this is being written post the cross, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of the heifer sprinkled on those who are, cer who are ceremonially unclean, but sanctify them that they are now outwardly clean but how much more then will the blood of Christ through through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished sinless to God cleanse our consciousness and, and from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God you see, the work that, that Christ did created a new way by which we could go from here to there I wanted to uh, put the picture of the tabernacle on that we used last week you see, once a year, once a year, a priest would enter into that back room that where the Ark of the Covenant is on the left side of the picture. Once a year, that priest would enter in there, and in order to enter into that place, and, that, and behind that curtain, that was where God's full presence could be experienced. Now keep in mind, his full presence meaning his justice, his holiness, his untaintedness, and all that righteousness in one place. And so if anything tainted would come into his presence, they would be destroyed. That is why priests would prepare for so many days leading up to entering into that special place. They would prepare through fasting and prayer and sacrificing many animals to prepare themselves to go in that room. But what wasn't shared last week that is also part of the history is that they often, even having done all those sacrifices, done all that preparation, still weren't confident enough that they could go into the presence of God and survive. So what did they do? They would tie bells onto their robes, and then they would tie a rope onto the right ankle. So if they heard the priest, when he went behind that curtain, crash to the floor, they'd hear the bells ring and, and the sound of clashing, and then they would have a rope by which they could pull the priest out by his right ankle. Now, if you were the high priest, would that be an exciting opportunity to enter such a room? No. There is fear and trepidation to enter such a place. It's for man who is here to go here and be with this. They knew there was nothing they could do, so they tried to do everything they could to prepare themselves to go into such a place. This is what makes the sacrifice of Christ so amazing. Because what had been used to cover sins temporally or to prepare one for being, a, a, and it's a single one, a priest to go into the presence of God like that, they would have to do all these special things just to even be there for a moment. Hebrews 10 says that for those who believe, 
by faith in the work of Christ alone, who has then, as it says here in chapter 9, who has provided a new way of entrance into the kingdom, into the presence of God, that those who have that can now enter with confidence. Look it up. Hebrews 10, 23. It says we can enter the presence of God with confidence. We don't have to tie bells to our pants or our skirts. We can go into the presence of God with confidence. We don't have to have a rope on our ankles coming into this room today. We can experience the presence of God without fear because of the work of Christ being complete and satisfactory in bridging the gap between man and God. This is beautiful. And that all happened at the moment when Jesus breathed his last. That cross, on that cross, the curtain that separated God from man was torn in two in that very moment. Thus releasing the presence of God to those who enter through a new curtain. That is the blood of Christ. This is the story of our faith. And we would not know it if we did not have the scriptures just before us. So there are three truths then that come out of this truth about grace. First of all, the work of Jesus on the cross to cover sins once and for all was in an act of an amazing grace. We know that song, Amazing Grace. We sung other songs that had that phrase in it. It's an amazing grace. It is truly amazing when you think about it. That in one act, all the sins committed throughout the history of mankind could be covered by one act in Jesus Christ, all we have to do is to acknowledge our standing before God. I'm a sinner. I'm in need of a work of grace. I can't go from here to there. God sees that, that work in you. And again, that work that he sowed in you. He was the one that initiated that work. And he provides the grace from the point of disbelief all the way to the point of belief and, and sanctification and being fully righteous. So the work of, of Jesus Christ on that cross is an amazing grace. And then faith in and of itself, having this idea to believe in such a work as being enough, that's revolutionary. I mean, just the fact that any of us would have faith to believe this is enough is an amazing concept. And to think, how is it we can get there to believe such a thing but other than the grace of God? And then lastly, this idea that, that I have the full merits of sonship or uh, 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 of being an heir of the kingdom of heaven, that I have all of that right here for me offered by one act done years ago, and that's all that is needed to bridge the gap and for me to have the right to be called the child of God. That I can look forward to the promises of God because of that one act, that one act of grace. I can't fathom that I get all of that just because of what God has done on my behalf. So I give you this final statement and question. This work of grace that was done for you and for me without any merit or payment on our part. Do you believe then that Christ's work on this cross was enough? You have to ask yourself, do you believe this is enough? Can you have faith to believe it is enough that you can't do anything to go from here to there? Do you believe it is enough? Can you trust in, them, in that work and then have faith in it and walk forward? And let the faith produce fruit in you. 
If you believe this is true and you believe in, in that and you put your faith in that and you say, God, I am a sinner and I recognize it's only by your work that I am saved and can have that hope. Then I call you to this as to what scripture says, repent then and walk in the freedom given according to his name. Repent. Change your mind. Acknowledge who you are. Turn to God. Acknowledge the work that he's done on your behalf. Have faith in that work. And then get to enjoy the walking in the freedom that comes through the work of the cross. Amen? Let's pray. So God, I, <laughs> we declare you as a great God today. We declare you being the ultimate gracious God that has gone way above and beyond to reconcile us back to yourself, that kind of love that would cause you to do what you did, the radical act that you did by sending your son Jesus to die for us, that radical love, I cannot fathom. I could not fathom doing the same thing. But yet you did it because you loved us and you did it because you knew we could not. So God, I thank you for that grace. We celebrate your grace today. We acknowledge you as an incredible God and we praise you now as God. God, move in our hearts. Cause us to have renewed faith and if there's somebody here that doesn't have that faith, give birth to that in their lives so that they may discover the freedom that there is in Christ. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. So if you're not aware that when the, tur the curtain was torn in two at the moment, Darn it, I hate this. It was said, it was finished. The work that God was going to do to bridge the, the loss of mankind through their sin was finished. That bridge was complete, and now it can be walked across. So we get the privilege, even today, if God is speaking to your heart, imagine the beauty of that. That would not have happened back then. But now the grace of God is such that he can speak to the human heart directly and we can feel his presence. We get that privilege because of one act of grace done years ago on our behalf and it was complete, it was finished. If you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ and you want to walk in that new walk of grace that is found in faith, we would invite you to come and pray with us. We have people over here underneath the cross who would be willing to talk with you. I'll be up front. This is an opportunity to find the grace that God is offering you through his son, Jesus Christ. And if you are a child of God already and you walked in today, walk out more grateful of that being aware of what was done on your behalf and saying thank you, God, and letting that gratefulness be an expression of our testimony this week. Amen? Amen. You are dismissed. Go in the grace of God.